Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions concerning the word of God as you've been studying scripture. Maybe you've hit a spot you need some help or counsel on, or maybe there's an area in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical direction. Well, if we can help by God's grace, we will. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. The number again is 525-1859. We have internet listeners who listen across the planet. And uh, if you're in the United States, you can use 877-WAGP980. Or you can uh, text us or email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net, tbl at wagp.net. If you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it that way as well. Well, Rick, we've got a lot of questions that have already come in, so let's go ahead and get started. Indeed, Pastor, we do have a number of questions. Um, Let's uh, go ahead and take one from uh, right here in Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, This woman says, the Bible speaks of vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And she'd like to know, could God have made me a vessel of dishonor? Well, I don't think so. Um, In fact, uh, your your question comes right from the portion of Scripture I just read a moment ago, 2 Timothy 2, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And so Paul is charging Timothy as a pastor, and by application all pastors, and by extension really in one sense all Christians, about our need to know the word of God. Because on the one hand, uh, the spirit of God is the one who gives the growth, and he's the one who brings about the second birth. But in both cases, in both conversion and in sanctification, The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to pull that off. But just knowing the Bible in and of itself does not make us useful to the Lord. That's a starting point, but there is to be a clean life in which the Word of God is to be expressed from. So he will go on and say, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, if a man cleanses himself from these things, from what things? Things of dishonor. He will be a vessel for honor, honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And then he goes on, he gets very specific flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So in a large home uh, where they have the extra money, they not only have ordinary everyday dishes, but they also have some special dishes that are set aside and set apart. And so it is the same in God's house 
God wants us all to be special vessels, and it's largely dependent on choices we make. So God doesn't make you a vessel of dishonor. Uh, If you're a vessel of dishonor as a believer, you've chosen that route. God makes us as uh, he calls us to be vessels of honor so that we can be useful to him. But that's predicated on decisions that we make, whether or not we want to live a clean life and whether, too, we want to study and show ourselves approved of God as a workman who's not ashamed. Now, there was a second question that that person gave, but we'll hold off on that since we have a live caller and we'll come back to it. Let's go to the first caller, Rick. Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Um, I was searching the scriptures, and and it says uh, not to have any graven images of heaven or earth. Yes. And I was wondering, you know, how I have little statues of angels, and I don't know if that would be considered a graven image. Um, I just wanted to get your input on that. Is it what your your um, feeling is about, like wearing a cross around your neck, like a golden graven image mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. where my Savior died. Right, right. It just reminds me every day of how he suffered and died for me. That's the only reason I wear it. Uh, I, I, I can understand that. Um, let me read the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the image that God refers to here is in connection to worshiping that image. And there were times, of course, in Israelite history where they are surrounded by the Canaanites and other pagans, the Philistines, the Hittites, and so forth, where they were an idolatrous people. And God warned that when they went into the land, uh, they were to guard themselves. They were to not intermarry, lest their hearts be drawn away and to the idolatry of those people. Uh, There were times even in Israel's history when they made graven images. Uh, The book of Judges, of course, is a classic example where sometimes they use them as a means to worship, like even the golden calf that, you know, Aaron uh, said, you know, it just just happened, you know. Uh, But nonetheless, the, the golden calf that they used many times in pagan theology, they would say, well, the calf is not the God, but that's the. That's the image that the God sat on or wrote on. And they no doubt thought well or in their minds contrived this idea that, you know, the calf was the, the, the vehicle that God sat on. And so uh, this is to promote worship um, of the one true God. And God says, no, 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 no. So when these things are connected to worship, then we have a real severe problem. We have a violation of the second commandment, we've made an idol that we've used as a means to worship. And I will say, let me just say parenthetically, that there are religions in the world that they use even things that are not necessarily evil in themselves as uh, a aid, quote unquote, to worship. And so in the Orthodox faith, for instance, it's not true across the board, but I've met a lot of Orthodox people, especially in Eastern Europe, where they have images of angels And they will tell you that they worship at the shrine of that image 
in order to reach God. More commonly, though, in the Orthodox, as well as in the Roman Catholic faith, they have uh, images of saints that they use, again, in going to God as intercessors or helping to enhance worship, even statues of Mary where they kneel at a statue of Mary. Those would be idolatrous marks when they're used as aids to worship or they directly worship the image itself. Now, I will say, uh, parenthetically, I've never seen your angel statues. Most of them that I've seen aren't very accurate biblically. Um, You know, for instance, they'll have little baby angels, these little cherubs. And, well, there's no such thing. Um, God didn't create, you know, angel babies. Uh, Angels are are sexless in the truest sense in that they neither marry with other angels. I shouldn't say they're sexless. sexless. They're in male form, but they don't um, integrate with other angels and have little angel babies, namely little baby cherubs. But nonetheless, so a lot of angel art is what I'm trying to say is not even accurate. And so even if I'm going to have biblical art in my home, I want it to represent biblical truth and not inaccuracies. Uh, In many churches, you go in into a children's wing and there is a Noah's Ark picture. And it's just uh, it's ridiculous. The picture that they've created, not even close to the Bible. And And in a lot of children's minds, there are so many children who come to church will only come as children because their parents feel some obligation to drop them off for a period of time and then they cease. And that image, especially if the church is weak biblically, is what's ingrained in their thinking as to Noah's Ark. And it leaves them open later on for some professor in the university who will attack the whole, you know, noadic flood and and uh, tear it apart and, and make it seem ridiculous. And it starts with the imagery that a lot of people have as to ter- in terms of what actually happened at the Great Flood. So if we're going to have art, let's make sure it's representative and certainly not as a means to worship or an aid to worship, because then we've crossed the line into idolatry. So to answer your question straight on, no, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to have angel art in your home or statues or to wear a cross around your neck. Now, a lot of people in our day don't understand the meaning of the cross. And so like you would not have seen in the first century, a Christian wearing a cross around their neck. Uh, It would parallel today to someone wearing an electric chair around their neck or a hangman's noose around their neck because it was an instrument of horror and it was an instrument of capital punishment. And so we've softened the cross in our day. And um, but again, if it if it's a reminder to you of the horror that our Savior went through and the tremendous price he paid both physically and spiritually, nothing wrong with it. And sometimes it can be a witnessing tool, uh, especially if the cross is unusual. I had a, a Jewish friend who would have a cross with the star of David attached to it. And uh, people would say, well, what's that star of David doing with the cross? And he, as a converted Jew, would turn it into an evangelistic opportunity. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. I think we did cover all of that. Uh, did you fully? Uh, uh, yeah. The, the, the second part of the question was God in reference. Maybe a vessel well, of dishonor. It, well, the second part of the question that this person uh, dictated was in reference. Uh, well, I, I guess we did. I, I think we covered the, the gist of it. So we'll leave it at that. All Thank right. You. Sounds good. Now, the next person that we caught today would like to know, ought we to stand to honor Christ when Handel's uh, hallelujah chorus is played. 
That's an interesting question. Um, it is true when the initial course was presented uh, that the king stood, and when the king stood, all the people stood with him. And he stood because he recognized that the peace that Handel had created was in reference to the king of kings. And so as a king himself, he wanted to give honor to the king of kings, and the people followed his example. I don't think that was a bad thing. I think that was an honorable thing that he did, that he recognized that all authority itself even is given from God, and that as a king, he was not some superior type God, but he was under the sovereign God of the universe. Um, In terms of being all things for all men, just lay that aside for just a second. There would be nothing morally wrong or evil with doing that, and not to stand might be a stumbling block for other people. Oh, you don't stand to honor the king of kings? And so when there's something that we can do where there's no moral compromise, and sometimes you might think, well, there's no big deal to it, but sometimes there is. And Paul said, you know, when as, a, as, a, as an evangelist of sorts, he said to the Jew, I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. To those without the law, I became like... Those without the law, I became all things to all men that I might win some. So you don't want to necessarily create un, uh, you don't want to create some unnecessary stumbling block that would prevent you from sharing the gospel or someone calling into question your witness. So if uh, the hallelujah chorus is played, I'm going to stand. Uh, anyway, it's a good question. Appreciate you asking it. Let's go to the next one. All right. Karen from Springfield, Georgia writes, I know this lady who is a Mormon. I've been helping her through the three years that I've known her. Recently, she and I have ended some conversations with harsh words. She has put me down and more or less told me I was not worthy of her intelligence. She also told me that she believes there is no hell and that God would not permit anyone to burn in hell forever. That when we die, we go to heaven depending on what we've done in life. She said there are three levels of heaven. She also said that we did not have to go through Jesus to be saved. Well, I guess I was a little upset at her words because I know what my Bible tells me. I've also heard your words on the subject as well. I have been told by my husband, the pastor's wife, and a few others to leave this lady alone, that she is trouble. My question is, how does someone reach a person like this? I feel sorry for her, but I know I'm not strong enough in my walk right now to help her because she is 63 and has been a Mormon most of those years. Should I just tell her I'm sorry I can no longer come and help her? She just keeps calling me and makes me feel sorry for her all the time. Well, it's a good question, and I appreciate the fact that you are compassionate towards her. You care about people's souls, so that's a good thing. Uh, Again, there's always new listeners every week, and let me just articulate as plain as I can. Mormons are not Christians in any respect of the word. There are certainly Christian denominations who differ on secondary issues that are not salvation issues, but on all the primary issues that one must embrace in order to be counted as a true Christian, Mormons depart from that. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of our Lord and Savior. Again, they use uh, terminology, but the way the devil works is an angel of light In disguise, he uses the same historical terminology of the Christian faith, but he infuses different meanings into the same words. And so when they use the term son of God, they do not mean that Jesus is God the son. They use the term in the sense that we're all sons and daughters of God. 
So they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And so they will turn to the book of James. Faith without works is dead. See, a man is not saved by faith alone. And they will turn to that book. And of course, they take verses out of context. And James is not dealing with justification before God. He's dealing with justification before men. That if a man truly is saved, if he says he has faith, then you ought to be able to see that faith. There ought to be some mark, some fruit, some evidence of conversion as the Lord Jesus taught. And so they make the gospel a works righteousness, something that you earn. So they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, They deny the virgin birth in the sense they redefine it. When they speak of the virgin birth, they do not speak of it in terms of uh, biblical truth that the Holy Spirit will overshadow the Virgin Mary and there will be a supernatural conception. They argue because they believe that God the Father has a body and if the Mormons come to your home and they pull out their flip chart, they'll show you a uh, artist's rendering of God the Father. Well, God the Father is spirit, does not have a physical body. The only member of the Trinity who incarnated himself was God the Son. So they argue that God the Father came down, had a sexual relationship with the Virgin Mary, and that's how the Lord Jesus came about. So it's one blasphemy after another, and it always comes down to, with every cult, is the Bible authoritative. And so they will say, well, the Bible is true as much as it's been translated correctly. Uh, That's their argument. And of course, when push comes to shove and a Mormon missionary is at your door and you're trying to show him something from the Bible that contradicts his doctrine, he'll pull out one or two memorized uh, passages where he presents to you a so-called contradiction in the Bible. And uh, so they're not hard to address if you know how to respond to some of these basic questions. I have a course on bibliology in one of the sections deals with biblical infallibility, and I go through about 40 alleged contradictions in the Bible. And when studied carefully, contextually, and so forth, you discover there are no contradictions in the Bible. So they would say only the Book of Mormon can be trusted. You know, the Doctrines and Covenants book, which, you know, is a collection of their more modern revelations, the Pearl of Great Price. But beyond that, you know, the Bible, well, we need to ultimately appeal to the Book of Mormon because that is correctly translated. Well, it's not. Um, Even the Book of Mormon has had scores of changes, and we're not talking about language updates. We're talking about textual changes from the original copies. And uh, the one who does a, a great job in dealing with this, there's a book called The Kingdom of the Cults by Dr. Walter Martin. It first came out in the 1960s. He, in my opinion, was the foremost foremost expert on Mormonism in the 20th century. Uh, just did a great job, not just in diffusing their error, but going to their original documents and saying, well, here's what they said, and here's what the Bible says. They both can't be right. The Bible and the Book of Mormon cannot both be true. In the Book of Mormon, for instance, it says Jesus was born in Jerusalem. The Bible says Messiah, Micah 6, and the New Testament records it, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. They both can't be true. So there's uh, differences like that all the way through the Book of Mormon. And of course, when they speak of hell, 
They just say, well, even your friend actually does not represent Mormonism correct, could be correctly because they do teach that a small number go to outer darkness. So they, they make an allowance for, you know, just some really bad dudes like Hitler and so forth will go to the outer darkness. But everybody else, they go to heaven. It's just a different level depending on their faithfulness. And uh, they see three levels of heaven. Now, it is true the Bible teaches there is reward in heaven, but there's not levels of heaven in different strata that, you know, the Mormon who's really faithful and has a lot of kids, you know, he's in the highest level versus, you know, the mediocre Mormon versus the non-Mormon. No, 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 not at all. That's just that's just one heresy after another. And the Bible, again, is infallible, and the Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, number one, your husband, who's your spiritual head, is asking you to back off, and you need to listen to him, because he's your spiritual leader, and you need to respect him. And so the Bible does teach, uh, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And so when there's just a disdain for truth and an utter rejection of it, the Bible says there is a time to withhold the gospel pearl. And that's really what you need to do. And your pastor's wife and your husband is telling you that, and especially as a new Christian, you, you need to listen to what they have to say. Uh, the best thing you can do is just pray for her. And if she wants to dispute your Christianity, say, well, you know, I'm a rather young Christian, but there's a website you can go to. It's called Born Again Mormon. And it's uh, written and put together by a man who was active in the Mormon church for over 30 years. And he will ask and answer all of the major questions about Mormonism and what the Bible actually says. Um, so I, I would direct her there and I would just leave it alone, but you can pray for her and have a ministry to her in that respect. Some people too want to share problems with you and they don't really want help. They just want someone to cry on. They don't want help And people who don't want help. You can help them. And when you offer specific instruction and say, well, this is what you need to do and they don't want to, but they want to come back the next week and whine all over again, you're wasting your time, valuable time for the kingdom of God. Um, Just pray for her and move on. Uh, That's what I would encourage you to do at that point. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Uh, When you were talking about the different uh, rewards that you get in heaven, uh, is that um, what is being referred to in John 14 when he says, uh, uh, my father's house, there are many dwelling places, uh, or is there some different distinction between levels of heaven and that? Yeah, no. Um, you know, it's it, it's interesting because <clears throat> John the John 14 passage has created a lot of confusion in our day uh, due to an older translation of the Bible where Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. Uh, The old King James says mansions. And in 1611, the word mansion meant a room. But uh, through the etymology of that word, as you study its history, it came to represent not just a room, but a magnificent home and building. And so 
what some have concluded from that in my home there are many mansions well there's different levels of mansions and you know there's when you look around there's nice mansions and there's average mansions and there's you know a bill gates mansion that's 28,000 square feet and there is a average mansion that's 8,000 square feet um but it just means rooms it's a word for dwelling places in my father's house there are many rooms and I go and I prepare a place for you. So he's coming to take us to himself. So no, that's not a passage that, that deals with either types of mansions or types of rooms. But there are other passages that deal with rewards. Passages like First uh, Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, um, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, Romans 14, 12. And if you're interested in studying that, this listener, you might go to the Back to Basics series And one of the messages, and this is our discovery class, at least um, 11 of the 20 handouts are now online, and you can listen to them at searchthescriptures.org, or you can download the Search the Scriptures app for your smartphone. And one of the lessons is developing an eternal perspective, and I go through the whole teaching from the Bible on the doctrine of rewards. That might be helpful to you. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. Chris uh, writes, we know the earth's population was wiped out by the great flood and uh, the earth's inhabitants were repopulated afterwards by Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. 350 years later at the Tower of Babel, God confused the tongues of these descendants and they were dispersed across the whole earth and continued to populate for another 700 years before Abraham was called by God. Today, we see the evidence of this dispersion by the diversity in languages and man-made religions around the world. In Numbers 13.33, it speaks of Nephilim in the land. If everyone was wiped out in the flood, how were there Nephilim in the land after the flood? The next question had to do with the eternal salvation of the descendants of Noah after the Tower of Babel. What happened to these distant descendants who died after being dispersed far away from the promised land, but before God's specific revelation to Abraham. Were any of these descendants who died in what is now, say, India, China, or Russia saved? If any of these people were saved, by what means were they saved? Well, it's a, it's a good question. Really, there's several questions there, but let me, let me try to hit a few of them. Let me first deal with the Nephilim or Nephilim, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, in Genesis chapter six, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. The King James says, uh, the giants were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now I have a sermon just on these verses from Genesis six, uh, the B'nai Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. It does not say the sons of men went into the daughters of men, but the sons of God went into the daughters of men. And so there seems to be a clear distinction. Um, In the Bible, the term sons of God is used exclusively of a new creation, of a special creation. So the angels, for instance, are called sons of God in the Bible because they are a special creation of God. God made a fixed number of angels, never to make any more. And so both uh, holy angels and those who fell from that holy state, fallen angels are called the B'nai Elohim. And again, the context determines whether you're dealing with a fallen angel or a holy angel. 
Adam is called a son of God. Why? Because like angels, he is a direct creation of God. He does not have human parents. He's a direct creation of God. And then the only other people that are called sons of God in the Bible are are, are born-again Christians. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God. And so we're called children of God in, in the epistles of Paul, sons of God. Why? And it's generic, meaning sons and daughters of God. Why? Because we are a direct creation of God. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. His old life has passed away and a new life has begun. So I take it in Genesis 6 that he's dealing here with angels who had a physical relationship with the daughters of men. Whenever angels are mentioned in the Bible, they are mentioned in male form. And so when God created these angels, he created them in male form. And we know in scripture that angels are able to take on human form. And so in Genesis 19, when the um, angels come to rescue Lot and his family, we discover that the men of Sodom want to have a physical homosexual relationship with them. They recognize that they're like real people and they recognize the possibility for that to, uh, to take place. And so I believe what we see in Genesis 6 are angels cohabitating with men, uh, with, with, with the daughters of men. And again, the best argument for this is not just that this was the almost exclusive view for 1,500 years of history. It was actually the Jewish view. In fact, in, in, you know, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there was a, a book called the Apocryphal of Genesis that was found. And again, not only do we find scripture, we found other writings in the Apocryphal of Genesis. Um, there is a mention of this very thing, uh, that um, the sons of God were angels who cohabitated with men. In fact, in the Septuagint, they translate B'nai Elohim, sons of God, as with the Greek word angelos or angels, that the angels cohabitated with the daughters of men. And so the traditional view carried down through Judaism through the early church as seen in the early church fathers who were kind of like direct disciples of the apostles who gave us a lot of writings. Uh, they argued that this was a relationship. And so the, um, the offspring is something that's supernatural. And that doesn't su- uh, totally surprise us because angels are also called like in some, I think it's Psalm 103, the sons of the mighty. And there are mightier in strength and power than men. And so the offspring is not unusual uh, to, to see. And it may help me to understand, too, the severity of the judgment that comes in the great flood. My guess is that Satan was trying to corrupt the bloodline for Messiah. And he wanted this hybrid of persons so that Messiah could not come. In either case, um, you find them again in Numbers 13. But the word can refer to a large people. There's two positions in terms of what took place in Numbers 13, that this was a, um, a second eruption of fallen angels who'd come to the earth. And some would appeal to um, this verse in Genesis 6, 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Um, and they would say, well, that is. And also afterward meant there was a second eruption later on that Moses is going to record. And some would say that this is why God also argued for the total destruction of the Canaanites. Everyone totally destroyed uh, because they appear to be um, withheld within the Canaanite people. 
that's possible or it is all equally possible because there is other literature where the word Nephilim, uh, Nephal is the Hebrew, it just means a fallen one. Um, Gagantes is the, is the uh, Greek word that's used that uh, is in the Latin translation translated giant. So it can just refer to a large, large person. So it's one of those two things. Um, the other part of the question, Rick, read it again. Okay, uh, let me get to it. The uh, next question has to do with the eternal salvation of the descendants of Noah. Okay, the- so, so they're arguing that the second part of the question deals with the eternal salvation of those who come after Noah. And their question is, well, how could they be saved in light of the Tower of Babel? Because obviously Noah came out with his wife. He had three sons. They had their three wives, and they repopulate the earth. And then they mentioned several centuries later, the Tower of Babel takes place and the languages are, you know, scattered throughout the earth. God gives no longer a single universal language, but there are a multiplicity of languages, which is the reason for the races, because people began to marry within their language group. So biblicists have an answer as to why there are so many races. Evolution tries to come up with an answer. And of course, Hitler keyed off of that and said, well, black people and Jewish people and other, you know, they were inferior races uh, because they were not as highly developed on the evolutionary scale. Um, And so um, there is an explanation in the Bible, a scientific explanation, because even anthropologists, not biblically speaking, but scientifically speaking, scientific anthropologists will argue that when people marry long enough within the same group that there are distinct facial, racial features that begin to develop. So we have an explanation for the races. Now, at the Tower of Babel, God, in his supernatural way, also dispersed truth through all these different language groups. So, for instance, there are over 250 flood stories, some of which, like the Babylonian flood story, which almost perfectly matches the biblical flood story. Why was that? Because you had all these people who came out of the generation at, generations after the flood, and you would expect, therefore, that they would have known of the great flood, and it came down into their language. But like anything else, when things are not recorded and they're told long enough, sometimes the story changes. And so while there are a lot of parallels in the other flood stories, they're not all identical, though the Babylonian flood story is almost identical to the biblical flood story. My point is, is that truth was disseminated also from the Tower of Babel. And so they would have heard of salvation through those generations. And so all these people, though they did not live in the promised land, but could be scattered abroad. And some would argue too, that it was at this time that the great continents divided. And so when we look at the continents, they fit together almost like a puzzle and that God actually broke the land. And some would say, well, therefore it was impossible for these other people to know of the revelation of salvation because they were separated. No, actually, they were given that revelation in their language group when they left. So God in his sovereignty showed compassion in that they had revelation, and you see that in the way history is recorded. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor Brogy. Good morning. Um, speaking with a, a co-worker who actually I, was really, really strange. He spent five years in Catholic seminary, 
and we were having some. You know, it wasn't a heated discussion, but it was it was a good discussion, a good debate concerning the Bible and how Catholics will. They believe just as much, I think, in in sacred traditions and oral traditions as they do in the written word of God, and they actually say some. You know, the Bible is in some sequences allegorical, and yet they will say that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is rather contradictory, if, if I'm correct in what I'm, I'm, I'm listening to him saying. And I'm just, I, I don't understand that thinking, uh, because, you know, they say, well, even though purgatory doesn't, it doesn't say it anywhere in the Bible, it exists. And, you know, God didn't intend to put everything in the Bible. And I just, being an evangelical, I find that very difficult to swallow. Well, it's a, it's a great question and a good uh, issue to ponder. Every born-again Christian should ponder this issue, whether God is still giving revelation beyond the Holy Scripture itself. And I don't believe so. I don't believe so at all, because I think the Bible mitigates against this, that there would come a time in human history when God would stop giving direct revelation. Now, he could give conf- conf- confirmatory revelation consistent with the Bible, but I don't believe that he can give new revelation in addition to the Bible. Um, So even Paul in the great love chapter of scripture, he will um, speak to the fact that, you know, of these different gifts that some of which had a revelational dimension. And so he says, uh, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss this passage because it will dovetail with our study of Romans uh, probably four or five weeks from now when we get to a section in Romans, the 12th chapter, and we'll dovetail this passage with it. But I, I believe that the perfect is a reference to the completed canon of Scripture. And when the completed canon of Scripture came, then the revelational aspects of a gift or gifts that were revelational totally in their expression ceased because there was no need for new revelation. And so even when the last book of the Bible is completed, God gives a warning that we're not to add or to subtract to what God has said. And so today, if someone says, for instance, speaks in a tongue and someone else interprets it, how do you know with Uh, this interpretation that they give, whether it should be believed or embraced. Well, if it's in addition to the Bible, then it's a violation of what God said at the end of Revelation. Now, some would say, well, that only applies to Revelation. Well, since Revelation is the last book written in the Bible, to add any new Revelation is to add to the book of Revelation, and the same same issue applies. Uh, So you cannot add to the Holy Scripture. And if someone gives some interpretation of a tongue that takes away, then again, that's a violation of Scripture. And so people are typically guilty in the cults of coming up with some interpretation that takes away from what God has plainly said, as in our first caller this morning, who was dealing with a Mormon who said, well, you know, I, I believe everyone goes to heaven and there are just different levels of heaven. And no, that's subtracting from what God plainly said and adding in another sense. So one of the issues of the Protestant Reformation was the issue of sola scriptura, that scripture alone must be the final authority. 
And so with purgatory, Catholics would argue that biblically uh, on that issue. The problem is, is that their canon of scripture is just a little bit different from ours. So they have more books than we do. So they would appeal to second Maccabees and they would say, well, this is actually a biblical doctrine uh, in that second Maccabees. I think it's the 12th chapter tells us to pray for the dead. Well, why should we pray for the dead when the rest of the scripture teaches that at the moment of death, a person is either with the Lord or he's in hell? There is no such thing as purgatory. And by the way, those intertestament books that were written between Malachi and Matthew, the Jews never recognized them as being inspired. And the New Testament never quotes them as being inspired. And when Jesus defined the Old Testament canon, he ended it with the law, the prophets and the Psalms. And he didn't, he never quoted or recognized the intertestament books. Now the Jews saw them as helpful and that they shed some light on what took place during that 400 years. And so even the 1611 King James Bible included the apocryphal books. The 1613 edition omitted them because the Catholics said, well, you see, you basically believe what we believe. And so the Protestants at that point removed them from their English translation to say, no, we don't believe that these are inspired and we're going to make a statement by removing them. Uh, The Catholics craftily intersperse them through the Old Testament, whereas um, the Protestants put them between the two Testaments. And so, for instance, in the Catholic Bible, there are 14 chapters to the book of Daniel. There's 12 chapters in the Hebrew Bible. There's 12 chapters in in our Bibles, our English Bibles. Uh, There's not a 13th and 14th chapter, but they take two apocryphal books and they add them to the book of Daniel. Uh, that that's almost dishonest. Um, so again, there are certain marks of inspiration by which we recognize man did not determine what was inspired. God determined that man just simply recognized and what were some of the marks of recognition. If someone wants to study this further, they might listen either to my course on bibliology on canonicity, how we got the canon of scripture, the 66 books we have or my little short book uh, that you can get on Amazon. I make no money from it. It's how to prove the Bible is true. And that would be helpful to you. But this is an important issue. If scripture is the final authority, then any papal degree, decree, or or tradition that the Pope uh, decides is an authoritative tradition, uh, if it's contradictory to the Bible, then we must reject it. Traditions can be heard, but they need to be weighed carefully in light of the Bible. So even the whole idea that Mary was immaculately conceived, we as evangelicals speak of the immaculate conception of of the Lord Jesus, but not of Mary. We believe that she fell under Adam's curse and like all else was a sinner. And so she acknowledges that herself in the Magnificat, where she says, my soul exalts in God, my Savior. But even that idea of Mary's sinlessness was not affirmed officially until the 1850s. And the fact that she was assumed into heaven came six or seven years after that by one of the popes. Um, So the Catholic Church, in fairness to them, do not recognize all all oral traditions or other kinds of traditions that may even be recorded as necessarily authoritative. 
But they would argue that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, that that is on the same level of Scripture. And this is what Luther challenged in the 95 assertions or theses that he nailed to the door of the church there at Wittenberg. He listed 95 things where he says, this is what the church says. Here's what the Bible says. And so what am I going to believe? And so if scripture is my final authority, then that's what we need to go with and reject the other uh, so-called traditions or dogmas of churches, whoever they might be. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Let's go to our next live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. We lost them. They're oh, on line two. Line so let's two. go to line let's two or another caller. All right. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Bogey. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I just saw, you know, recently that Target has come out in open support of same-sex marriage. And uh, uh, I guess the Association for Marriage or group of that type came out and called for a boycott of Target. I know that in the past, Bill O'Reilly has called for... uh, boycotts of Hardee's slash Carl Jr. for their sexualized commercials. Uh, I know years ago, Erwin Lutzer came out and said he didn't believe that boycotts worked. Uh, I was just wondering, what do you think about the whole idea of what Target's doing about boycotts in general? Is it just something for your conviction, or in certain cases, should you boycott? It's a good question, and it's certainly um, debatable, you know, amongst Christians as to what we should do and how we should do it. Uh, For instance, uh, let's just take uh, picketing an abortion clinic, by example. There was a time when Christians consistently um, would walk outside of an abortion clinic with a sign And they said in those days, about 70% of the abortion clinics would close where that happened. Listen, Planned Parenthood tried to move to Beaufort, and a number of people from Community Bible Church and other churches stood out on the highway in protest, and it ended up foiling their plans, and they ended up shutting down, for which I'm grateful. So some of these things can work. Uh, The whole protesting of abortion clinics ultimately went south when Operation Rescue came in and some of the things became, well, more violent, not because they necessarily advocated that, but some of the people who were linked uh, with them in in an informal way uh, used violence and then the whole thing turned, you know, in a very negative way. Um, There were times when boycotts worked, for instance, um, when initially Disney came out and uh, said that we um, are, you know, going to have, you know, gay day in Disney World. Uh, The Southern Baptist Convention officially boycotted Disney and they had thousands of youth groups. They're the largest Protestant denomination in the United States would go there. And a lot of them said, well, we won't go. And Disney felt the pain, and they backed off. Uh, There was a boycott of Kmart many, many years ago on another moral issue, and it worked with Kmart. 
But if you're just going by experience, you could equally say, and I'm sure Erwin Lutzer has this in mind, that there are tons of boycotts that have not worked. And, you know, right now, uh, you know, there will be groups like the American Family Association who will, you know, it seems like every week I get some new thing that I'm supposed to boycott. And it becomes almost, you know, endless in terms of what we can do as Christians. So I think we should express our disdain. Um, Right now, this thing has moved so fast and so furiously with gay marriage that I think I, I just don't think that the boycott practically is going to work. I'm, I'm not saying that if you have the strong conviction that you want a boycott Target, I don't I, I don't have anything for or against. I don't go to Target, but I take that back. I did go I think once last year, and then I got my credit card information stolen. So uh, they sent me a free year, Rick, of some kind of. Uh, you know, security protection. Uh, and that added to the year uh, prior to that when my um, identity was supposedly uh, hacked through our paying our taxes through the state of South Carolina. So you can't win. So don't, what did that tell you? Don't shop at Target and don't pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There we go. There's an application, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, it, it is a personal issue. And there are times, obviously, when you can speak up and it does good. And there are times when, it's not always wise, and you have to walk with God, and he has to give you the discernment that you need. The, the, the biggest thing that's going to change the culture is not, of course, boycotts. It's the preaching of the gospel, and most Christians are not doing that anymore. Most Christians no longer share their faith in America, and uh, only changing the fabric of individuals will change the culture. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling. How can we help? I have a question about church discipline. Does it apply to someone who's born again? Uh, They don't really go to church regularly, and so I guess they don't have a a church. So um, they claim to be born again. So I guess the first part of the question is, does it apply to them? No, it really does not. Um, he's dealing with people in the local assembly, um, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, when the issue is addressed. So Jesus said, if your brother sins, you reprove him in quiet. If he doesn't listen, take two or three. If he doesn't listen, take him to the ecclesia, bring him to the church. So there is an assumption that he is a part of a local assembly. Uh, likewise, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, when he deals with an issue of a man who uh, is sleeping with his stepmother, he's in the local assembly, and they should have done something about it, but they ignored it and just put up with it. So no, the issue that is involved in church discipline is not just the individual, though it is, but also the reputation of the local assembly. When you're dealing with so-called born-again Christians who say, I'm born again, and they're not a part of a local church, then they're just in disobedience uh, and may not even be born again. Because one of the marks, you know, when, when John at the end of his first epistle says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Is he saying that it's possible for a person to be saved and not know that he has eternal life and therefore he's writing? No, 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 no. 
when he makes that statement, he is dealing much like with James in his letter, people who say they have faith, but they give no evidence. And so in First John, he's walking through, among other things, among other issues, some marks of genuine conversion. And so when he says these things, he's saying, look, some of these things that I've written in this epistle, if these are true of you, then it's true that you truly believe in the Lord Jesus and you can know you have the genuine item. So one of those things that he mentions, for instance, by this we know we've passed out of death into life and that we love the brethren. So a mark of conversion is that you love God's people. Now, it's possible for a Christian to be out of fellowship with God and therefore out of fellowship with God's people. Just like a mark of conversion is that we forgive. It's possible for a believer to withhold forgiveness. And so Paul commands it in first, uh, in Ephesians 4.32, to believers. But as a general principle, a mark of conversion is that I'm a forgiving person. As a general principle, a mark that I'm born again is I love the brethren. And if I don't love the brethren, then I'm just giving evidence that I, I really have never met Jesus Christ in a genuine way. So I, I think rather than approach your friend with the idea, well, you know, you should be under church discipline. You should, if anything, get him to question whether or not he's born again. Because remember, in Matthew 7, when Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. They're claiming to be born again Christians. If you'd asked those people the diagnostic questions, they would have answered them correctly. They would have said, I'm 100% sure because I've, Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. You never had a relationship with me. That's the scary thing. Now, sometimes we can ask these people some simple diagnostic questions who we think are saved, and they can't even answer the questions, giving evidence that they've never really truly been born again. Because you have to know what you're being asked to believe before you can claim genuine conversion. So it might be that your friend's not even converted, but if he knows all the right answers, if anything, you should get him to question whether or not his salvation is genuine, the fact that he has no involvement in a local assembly. Um, so, and, and that may explain, too, some of the lifestyle issues that you think, oh, if he were a member of a local church, he would be under church discipline. And again, that's one of the functions of church discipline. Some of the people that you put out and you treat as a tax gatherer, you're getting rid of an unbeliever who says he's born again and you're removing him from the church to protect the testimony of the local assembly in the name of Christ. Well, it's a great question. We're out of time. A lot of questions we didn't get to today, but by God's grace, there's always another day for us to come back and to help. So uh, stay patient and Lord willing, we'll be here again next week. If you don't have a church home, I invite you to Community Bible Church this Sunday, meeting at the Bridge Center next to the uh, Mexican restaurant on Hilton Head, and here in Buford at 638 Paris Island Gateway. Go to communitybiblechurch.us for service times and directions. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. 